there, this is a, a bombshell book which uh, just came out uh, last week and uh, it makes uh, some uh, pretty uh, hair-raising uh, charges against uh, a lot of folks involved with the National Football League. Uh, the title says a lot of it, Interference, How Organized Crime Influences Professional Football. Please uh, welcome its author, Dan Moldea. Dan? What are you hearing from the powers that be? Anything? We oh, they just want me to go away right now. We've, we've spoken to them, and they don't want to talk about it either. They have nothing to say. But they're not denying anything, and they're not refuting any of the facts. Let me, let me talk about some of the major charges. And I, just, I just jotted down a few of the... I mean, you're saying, you're saying for example, um, uh, virtually every team owner gambles on, on football teams? Well, I'm saying that no fewer than 26... That's uh, NFL team owners have documented ties, past and present NFL team owners have documented business ties to either the gambling community and or the organized crime syndicate. I'm also saying that no fewer than 70 NFL games have been fixed. Now, that, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty uh, rough stuff. You're saying no fewer than 7-0 NFL mm -hmm. games have been fixed. You mean right. the, the, the outcome, the point spread, what? I'm saying the points were shaved and thereby fixed. Yeah. How does this happen? Well, I, I first got into this about 1983. Uh, uh, Vincent Persani, who is the head of the Michigan State Attorney General's Office Organized Crime Division, told me, if you're going to do a book about the NFL, Dan, you're going to have to get into this guy, Don Dawson, because he was fixing games. We knew it. I went to my friends and my sources at the Internal Revenue Service, the Organized Crime Intelligence Division. They said Don Dawson was fixing games. I went to the FBI, the Organized Crime and Racketeering Section of the Justice Department and Strike Force Field Offices. Everybody told me what Don Dawson was fixing games. At that point, I had enough evidence to pr print that allegedly Don Dawson was fixing NFL games. He was a major bookmaker in the Midwest. I then went to Dawson. I tracked him down. I jumped through all kinds of hoops to interview him. And when I interviewed him on about the seventh or eighth interview, he admitted to me that he had personally participated in the fixing of no fewer than 32 how, NFL how, games. How, and how does that happen? He liked to work with the quarterback. He would, he would, he would go to the, the quarterback would come to him and say, um, I need some bread. Uh, what's the line on the game this week? And the, uh, and the bookmaker would say, you guys are favored by six points. And then the reply was, we're not going to cover the spread. And basically, that was it. Mm. Now, do you, you, do you name players? Oh, sure. I name books? players. And also, in 1979, I, name, uh, I, I go into the specifics of eight fixed games that were uh, allegedly fixed by two referees who were investigated by both the FBI and the IRS. And I, named, I list the uh, eight games in the, on page 308 of the book. Yeah. Uh, are drugs involved in this at all? Yeah, drugs are uh, the real variable in all of this. I mean, when a, when a dealer, a drug dealer has, has a relationship with a player, there's an extortionate edge to that, to that situation whereby that dealer has that player's uh, career in his hands because of the, the drug policies within the NFL for throwing a person out. Within, within the past few years, no fewer than nine NFL teams have been investigated because their players were receiving drugs from gamblers. Now, I know gamblers who, on principle, refuse to sell drugs, but I'm not aware of many drug dealers who on principle refuse to gamble. Mm. And uh, the key here is, is, that the, is that the NFL is very aware of the fact, and their worst case scenario is the, the player who's strung out can't pay his bill to his dealer, and so he, you know, he, the dealer comes to him and says, hey, you owe me money, and the, dealer says, and, and, and the player says, I told you I can't pay it, and the dealer says, that's okay, but now you're going to come and work for now, me. Now, the, the obvious question, you're pointing, you're talking about all these games being fixed, you're talking about all these people involved, you're talking about going to various agencies and they're saying who the people are involved. Why, why, why has this been 
why is this going uncovered if this is the case? What I'm also alleging in the book is that no fewer than 50 legitimate investigations of corruption within the NFL have been either suppressed or just flat out killed as a result of a sweetheart relationship between NFL security, which is the internal police force within the league, and a variety of federal and state and local law enforcement agencies. I have more, I'm a big baseball fan, and I have more respect for baseball right now because of the way it's handled the Pete Rose case in the open and honest manner that has handled this case than I've ever had before. I have more confidence in baseball because it's handled... Well, how do these investigations, investigations get quashed? Basically, it's a, it's a really... It, the, the NFL security people, who are all former Justice Department people, will go to their colleagues, their old colleagues in the Justice Department or in these various law enforcement agencies, and they'll say, uh, we, um, we can handle this internally. Let us handle it internally so that we're not getting all the publicity that we would be getting. And so to all intents and purposes, these investigations, we I can cite chapter investigations. Again, I cite about 50 in the book. The story you are about to see is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Yeah, so you've written ten books at this point. Ten books, right? Okay, and they're all they're all within the true crime genre per se, right? Yeah. Organized crime yeah. and uh, corruption. So, for for someone like you, I mean, like wh whenever you were growing up, was journalism what you always aspired to be in this particular form of it, or you just happened to get into this through happenstance? I wanted to be a pro football player. Really? Well, your uh, your father was a college football player. At Ohio State, dad was, uh, my dad was a great athlete. He was uh, a, a great uh, track and field star at Ohio State. He played on Paul Brown's freshman team in 1940, and then Dad got drafted, and um, and he was expected to be the start of one of the starters. I think in the 41 Ohio State team, and then he got drafted, and Ohio State co-shared the national uh, championship with I think Georgia Tech. I think that year. And um, military, and when he got out, he returned to Ohio State, and uh, he was asked to rejoin the football team. But he was uh, he he got trapped in a, a some play and got injured, and he was told leave you know leave the the day to day uh, football playing to the kids. So they made him a, a place kicking specialist. Mm -hmm. and so Dad was. Uh, Dad won a uh, a big game against Northwestern back in 19, I think it was in 1946. And if you look in uh, ESPN wildest finishes in Ohio State football, uh, my dad's uh, my dad's heroics that day are featured uh, as the number one wildest finish in Ohio State sports history. That's impressive too that he was a uh, a specialized place kicker at that time because I don't think you really had too many rosters that had that. Well, he was he was close to Lou Groza, who became uh, who became a, a, a place kicking specialist when he grew out of being a tackle with the Cleveland Browns. My dad uh, was very close with Danny Lavelli, who was a Pro Football Hall of Fame guy, a Cleveland Browns guy. In fact, they did a show, after Interference came out, I did a show with Danny Lavelli, and I didn't know how Danny Lavelli was going to feel about what I had done. I mean, I I really. You know, I looked up to Danny Lavelli when I was growing up as a kid. Mom and dad and, and Danny Lavelli and his wife 
and our families would get together from time to time. Uh, Dad was friends with um, um, uh, McCafferty, the guy who was Don McCafferty, who was the head coach of the Baltimore Colts. Yeah. And I think it was in his first season he won uh, a Super Bowl. And uh, and I think he was fraternity brothers with with Don McCafferty at, at, at Ohio State. And Dad wanted to be a coach. That's what he wanted to do. And um, you know, the war. Dad loved his war experience and his military experience. And he was in the 357 Flight Squadron. And he was not a pilot. He was a trainer. Uh, but he had guys like Kit Carson and, and Chuck Yeager, the first man eventually to break the sound barrier, as among those people he trained. And so Dad was, uh, you know, bottom line is I, I really looked up to my dad. He was one of the finest people I ever knew. And sadly, he died at age 64. He was, he was, uh, as I say, he wanted to be a football coach. Mm -hmm. And sadly, he, uh, I came along and I kind of probably wrecked that for him a little bit. And, um, but I wanted to be, I thought I, I thought I had what it took. I could catch anything you threw at me, anything. I just throw it 20 feet over my head. Somehow I'll bring it in. And uh, so my first few years in high school, I rode the bench. And, but I figured my senior year was going to be my big year. And, um, and then I, um, and then my coach sat me down during the off season and told me I was going to be benched in my senior year too, in favor of two uh, juniors who were outstanding ball players. So outstanding, in fact, that both of them wound up going to Northwestern University on scholarships, and both of them wound up playing for the Minnesota Vikings. So I ended up getting X'd out by Jim Lash, mm -hmm. who was a wide receiver for Minnesota and played, played in Super Bowls, and with Steve Craig, who was a, a tight end for the Minnesota Vikings. So I had some stiff competition back then. I don't know anybody else who who could who could claim that? But it did end my career. But I I was elected senior class president that year, so student politics became my salvation, and I became a student activist after that. And that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a you know I wanted to be a person who led a committed life. Mm -hmm. And um, I was deeply affected by the Kent State shootings in on May fourth, nineteen seventy. I was a student at the University of Akron. Kent State was about twelve feet, uh, excuse me, twelve miles. Uh, northeast of Akron, mm -hmm. and which is my hometown. And um, uh, once again, I, I wanted to lead a committed life. I worked in the civil rights movement for uh, uh, um, after after graduation. I worked as, as assistant director of a federal poverty agency. I taught a course called Racism and Poverty at Kent State in the Honors and Experimental College, where I went to graduate school. I went to graduate school at Kent. Um, I, when I came to Washington later on, the last job I had was in 1979 after the Hoffa Wars, my book on Jimmy Hoffa's Rise and Fall came out. Um, I was just burned out and I needed a job. And a friend of mine, uh, my girlfriend was, uh, was a woman's rights activist. And so she had a friend who was on her board of directors of her organization where she was president. And, uh, her friend asked me if I would become her executive assistant. Uh, to the agency, and at the agency was John Lewis, the great civil rights icon. And I ended up writing some speeches for John uh, John Lewis, which was one of the greatest honors of my life. So I've always viewed myself as being um, a fighter, and sure. uh, and that's the way I took on my career as uh, as an investigative journalist. My while I was assistant director of that federal poverty agency, we got shook down by a mob guy. And the executive director of the agency was uh, was allegedly 
embezzling money. I was the one who caught him. Okay. And so I confronted him with the evidence. He fired me. I went across the street to the prosecutor's office in Ravenna, Ohio, and uh, a scandal erupted. I, I, I was fired. I was out of a job. Uh, I was getting threatened. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand why. Um, I thought Elliot Ness and the Untouchables had cleaned up the mob back in the 30s. I didn't even think they existed. Uh, there was a gentleman by the name of William Ellis who was a who was an attorney in Akron, Ohio. Uh, he was a he was a, a, a junior uh, counsel for the NAACP during the Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court fight, and he owned a small newspaper that serviced the black community in Northeastern Ohio called The Reporter. Okay, and he asked me to be uh, his token white columnist, and so I was the white guy who had a column there, and so I was writing about you know, pretty lightweight stuff at first. But eventually I was I was put in contact with a gentleman by the name of Mac McKinley. And in December 1974, I started investigating the Teamsters Union uh, with the help of this guy who gave me all these secret documents. And then I befriended um, uh, a guy named John Whitney, a, a great investigative journalist from the Wall Street Journal. I did some work for him on the Teamsters and a, and a series that he had done following a series I had done for my own newspaper. And then um, in July, on July 30th, 1975, eight months after I'd started all this, Jimmy Hoffa, the former president of the Teamsters Union, disappeared and was presumed murdered. And so I hit the ground running, uh, working with NBC News, Detroit Free Press, Jack mm-hmm. Anderson, and other places. And I eventually came out with my first book about the rise and fall of Jimmy Hoffa in 1978. So that's pretty much where I started. Not quite where I thought it was going to be end yeah. up. But I always wanted to be a writer. I mean, I may have gone to want to be like at first an astronaut, but I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a football player, but I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a civil rights activist, but I wanted to be a writer or a lawyer and a writer. It always um, it always stuck around in some sort of career ad, uh, attribution or uh, aspirations. I always found that, you know, sitting down and writing about things was a good way to get your head together. And um, and I had I had an, an extraordinary a professor in my life in school who um, who thought I had some talent. And so she uh, sort of mentored me. Her name was Nancy Nolte. I knew her entire family, her husband, her children, and everything else. Mm-hmm. We were, they were just wonderful people. And Mrs. Nolte, as I always called her, even though she was a PhD, uh, she always, you know, sort of looked out for me. And, uh, and I've been blessed with some great mentors. Mrs. Nolte, Walter Sheridan, who was who was Bobby Kennedy's right-hand man when he was at the when he was Attorney General at the Department of Justice? Jack Tobin, the great writer from the Los Angeles Times, uh, Irving R. Levine from NBC News, um, and my friend Bob Davis, who uh, who uh, was a war hero, a guy I knew from Ohio, who always remained in my life. He was my touchstone, probably the smartest guy I've ever known. Wow. Okay. Yeah, so obviously the, that experience is definitely going to teach you to be a fighter, and it definitely came in handy after you uh, published this book, Interference, because obviously yeah. uh, you know the NFL had a lot to come after you for, and uh, you know put a, a lot out there to uh, try to discredit the book or discredit you know, other aspects of your career, so you could say. Um, well, and like, it wasn't the NFL never laid a glove on me. It was the right, right, it but, was New York Times that that ran interference, if I can use that word. Mm-hmm. For the NFL, the, the what had happened was um, in January of 1983, uh, Frontline had done a story called "The Unauthorized History of the NFL." Mm-hmm. 
On Frontline tonight, a story of football. But it is not played on the field, nor cheered from the stands. The action of this story takes place off the field. It's a story about bookies. It's a story about the outlaw line, football, illegal gambling, and the mafia. And uh, I knew uh, two of the researchers on it and, and, and one of the top producers. And the show really got beaten up. Just really got smacked around in the press. And, um, you know, I had mixed feelings about it. I like my friends and everything else, but I thought they had missed some things. They offered me, uh, two, they had $250,000 worth of research that had gone into this. And so they offered me everything. They offered me, after all the grief they had taken and everything else, they said, let's see what you could do with it, Dan. Mm -hmm. And so I did. I, by this time, I had done, I had done uh, my book, The Hoffa Wars. That was a pretty big book. I had done a book called The Honey. My dad got pancreatic cancer, and so I went back home. And as you can tell, my dad is my favorite person in the world. When dad got sick, I left Washington, and I went back home for a year to help the family with him. I rented a house a couple of miles away from uh, where my family lived, so I wasn't dealing with, you know, imposing on them for, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. And then I would take Dad, I would pick up Dad, and then we we'd go to uh, we go up to the Cleveland Clinic for his radiation treatments. And then you know, on the way back, we'd stop and play golf or go eat lunch or something like that. And uh, but um, Dad knew uh, that I was that I had been offered all this information from Frontline. And once again, that was, you know, big football star and everything else. Right. And on his deathbed, um, I said to Dad, I said, uh, listen, you know, you know where I'm going with my career now and everything else. Uh, what do you think? And he, I said, you got any advice for me? And he said, and he got very quiet, <clears throat> and he said, yeah. He said, don't write that goddamn book about the NFL. Because my dad knew that that book would break my heart, which it did. Yeah. Uh, it was, I put so much work into that book. And I, 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 I it's not my favorite book that I did, but I think it's one of my best. And I, mm. I, I'm going to be remembered for this book. That's for goddamn sure. Just like Bernie Parrish is remembered for, they call it a game. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that, I think Interference is a, is a book that's certainly going to stand the test of time. I mean, you know, I was on during the book tour on September 11th, 1989. I was on Nightline, ABC Nightline program, and on the program I was with two guys I liked, knew, knew, liked, and respected. Uh, mm -hmm. Warren Welsh, who was the head of NFL security, which, as you know, is the internal police force within the league, and I was on with Roxy Roxborough, who was the um, the top odds maker in Las Vegas. And I had, during my research trips and everything else, I got to know these guys and I liked them. I considered them to be friends actually. Mm -hmm. And which was bad for me that night on nightline. Cause I wanted guys I didn't like to be on against me so I could eat them alive. That's right. what I do. Yeah. And so, um, instead I was with two guys I liked. And so, um, but during the conversation, during the final two minutes of the program, I was, uh, we were asked to sum things up. And I said, I had the audacity to say, let me tell you what's going on in the NFL. 
the NFL owners want to control the gambling themselves. They want it right in the stadium, just like you could go to a horse racing track and go to a paramutual window and make a bet on the game that you're watching or any other game that's going on simultaneously in the league. And Warren, <laughs> really dove on. Have you seen this clip? I have, yeah. They completely brushed you and, off. And, and, and Roxy Roxborough is as sophisticated as he is. Yeah. Uh, he even, you know, mocked me for this. And yeah. I said, guys, remember where you heard it first. Discussion now on gambling in the NFL. Gentlemen, we are down literally to our last two minutes, so I'd like a concise answer to the very simple question. Mr. Welsh, gambling goes on all over America. Why not legalize it if you can't stop it? We don't need more betting, and particularly on the National Football League. It's a spectator sport. It's an exciting sport, and we don't need more gambling. Well, that was concise. Mr. Roxborough, you think it's a good idea to legalize uh, the action? Well, listen, we already have legalized gambling, and we have 43 states with legal paramutual wagering, 31 states with legal lotteries. The states are already in the gambling business. They like it because they're generating revenue for worthwhile causes. So why not generate more revenue through sports wagering for other worthwhile causes? I don't have any problems with it at all. Dan Mulday, your principal concern is organized crime's influence. Wouldn't legalized gambling diminish the influence of organized crime? No, I don't think so. I think it's going to enhance it. Basically, what I think is happening is that I think there's going to be a law enforcement disaster in Oregon. I think there's going to be proliferation of organized crime activity in Oregon. I think what's happening in the NFL is that the NFL owners want to control the gambling themselves. I think they want to have it right in the stadium, just as you would at a horse racing track, where you could go to a paramutual window and make a bet on your favorite team or any other team that's going on, any other game that's going simultaneously in the league. That's too bizarre, Dan. Too bizarre. I think, I think that's coming because I think that's why uh, Jim Pinks is being, is being held up as NFL commissioner, because they want a commissioner who's going to be a little so more sensitive to the problem of gambling totally in the outrageous. NFL. Uh, totally outrageous. We'll see. We'll Mr. See. Welsh, um, okay. remember you what you heard it first. Do you have any sense that Mr. Mulday is predicting the future? Absolutely not. I think he is 100% incorrect. Talk to Gene Klein, former owner of the San Diego Chargers. He agrees with that. The, yeah. NFL, the NFL owners want to control the gambling. They want to control the vigorous. He's a former owner. He's a former owner who wishes he could have controlled the gambling and the vigorous. <laughs> you have to understand that these new owners, the 11 owners who are stopping Pete Rozelle from finally retiring after a fine job that he did, are putting themselves in a position where they, uh, they, they're holding a lot of paper, they're holding a lot of debt, they're spending $100 million for the team, Television revenues aren't going to carry the day for these NFL owners for gentlemen, long. They need the gambling. They need the vigorous. Gentlemen, Absolutely it's, gentlemen, incorrect. It's 11 to 5 that we're out of time. Thanks to all of you for joining us. Tomorrow night in this time slot, another in the ABC News series. And I think, uh, I think uh, Warren tried to discredit you by saying it was uh, Gene Klein who was a former owner or something like that. Right. But yeah. he, it was Gene Klein who was the one who made me hip to this, what mm -hmm. was going on. And so Gene Klein, the former owner of the San Diego Chargers, you know, he said, Dan, I'm telling you, this is, way, this is where it's going. And the owners are very interested. Television revenues aren't going to carry the day for us. Mm -hmm. We need gambling. We need the vigorous, which is exactly what I said on Nightline. And, and here it is X amount of years later. And here's uh, this, this creep, Dan Snyder, who owns the, the, uh, the ex-Washington Redskins team. Mm -hmm. Who is who has built a in the new stadium? They have a they have a sports book in the new stadium. Exactly what I predicted. Yeah. But it's amazing that I mean, no one remembers this. It's it's like I said, nothing at all. I think that adds to the uh, sort of stature that the book has now because everyone I, I talk to who's read the book absolutely loves it. Like, there's very few people that I've met who actually, and maybe it's just more of a product of the time, but like for me, it's always been a book that people are very fascinated by. And especially for me, because I love learning about like the inner circle of like the ownership 
of the NFL. And this book covers a lot of territory about the owners who have had relationships with bookmakers and in many cases who came into the NFL because of their gambling ties. Um, so for me, it was really fascinating to take me into a, a subculture or not even a subculture really, but you know something that was a big part of the NFL's history. So let's go into the, the, the makings of the NFL security department, because obviously, as we mentioned, there's been a longstanding relationship between you know the NFL and bookmakers at varying degrees. Uh, let's look at like the pre-Roselle era with the 1946 NFL championship game whenever the Giants and the Bears were going at each other and two Giants players had been approached about uh, throwing a game um, or, or at shaping points and some sort of fix. Uh, I, I guess Burt Bell had found out, I guess, a week or before or after but that they hadn't reported, so they were reprimanded. Can, can you give a little context how that um, that event sort of changed the outlook for the league and then, you know, what were some of the steps moving forward that they wanted to do? I don't, I don't really have – I mean, I, I've sort of went with the public record on that, mm-hmm. on that particular case. And I had some – I interviewed the all of the – with the exception of, of Jim Hamilton – yeah, it was gone by the time I I, invite, I interviewed all of the heads of NFL security. My book is really a history of NFL security. That's yeah, what it is. and um, um, the 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 hate, uh, hates and Phil Chuck was that yeah it? they were the guys. Um, you know the the, the information came to um, the world of professional football and, and Burt Bell and the others who was commissioner at the time, and it was about that they were. Um, that they were, um, that you know, that that the game was fixed. That, 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 that they need that the bookmakers needed ten points to cover, and as I recall, the final score of the game was twenty four fourteen. So they covered, and so um, you know, I uh, I think that became the beginning of it. But it was it really wasn't until the the Paul Horning Alex Kara scandal, yeah, in nineteen sixty, I guess it was. That's when the NFL, Pete Rozelle, who I thought was a very fine commissioner, honest guy, uh, that's when they decided to get serious. And they ended up getting Jim Hamilton, who was head of the Los Angeles Police Department's Organized Crime Intelligence Division. They brought, they brought him in to handle these investigations. Mm-hmm. And then Jim wasn't there for very long. And then he was replaced by Bill Hunley, who I knew pretty well. I knew him from my investigations of Jimmy Hoffa because he was – he was the head of the organized crime and racketeering section in the Justice Department during Bobby Kennedy's uh, term as attorney general. And I, I must say that I, I view Bobby Kennedy as the greatest crime fighter this country has ever had. When he was when he was chief counsel of the Senate Rackets Committee from 1957 to 1960, he was eating mafia guys for breakfast. And when he became uh, attorney general of the United States in 1961 with the inauguration of his brother, um, he was started eating mob guys for for break, for lunch and dinner too. <laughs> Bobby Kennedy was the greatest crime fighter this country has ever had. He had the greatest. He assembled the greatest team of crime fighters of all. One of whom was Bill Hunley, and Bill Hunley's partner was a guy named Pelican. And the two of them wound up creating a firm uh, to do investigations, and they were hired by the NFL. That was uh, Intertel. Intertel came out. I think. I think. I'm trying to remember what I'm going to stand by whatever's in the book, but I'm trying to remember whether they created Intertel and then it became part of it. I was a close friend of Tom McKeon, who was the executive director of uh, Intertel. And uh, of course, that was, you know, part of the Resorts International scene mm-hmm. down yeah. in the Bahamas. And so um, they also ran a lot of private security for like Howard Hughes and a lot of Vegas yeah. casinos. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Mm-hmm. And um 
and 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 got it got it got tarred up pretty good. They mm-hmm. they, they really got they really got. I, I Bill Hummond was one of my he was one of my heroes. Yeah, my book. I mean, I really looked up to Bill. And then um, Did, didn't Bobby uh, Kennedy also introduce uh, Pete Rozelle to Jim Hamilton? You know, I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah. I, I believe that is correct. You can't you can't tell the history of the NFL Security Department without Bobby Kennedy. Then I guess. <laughs> Again, yeah. Bob, catch up. And Bobby Kennedy is my favorite person in American history. So yeah. that's, you know, that's. Now for the, the, um, Paul Horning and Alex Kerr suspension, that actually involved Don Dawson too, correct? Actually, uh, f- from, from what you can remember, can you explain to the audience, uh, like what the Karras and Horning suspension was for those who may not be familiar with their suspension in 1963? Uh, Alex Karras was a, uh, he was a tackle for the Detroit Lions uh, Paul Horning was a Heisman Trophy winner mm-hmm. uh, who went with the Green Bay Packers. Both great players. Um, uh, Paul Horning was a great running back. And um, Al- I interviewed Alex Karras at length. And Karras told me that he had some friends who were underworld people. And um, you know, he never. He says he never did business with them or anything like that. But you know, there were certain things that he did where he got caught, and and Paul Horning also did some things where he got caught. But the difference was that Paul Horning uh, showed regret. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alex Karras was defiant. Yeah, <laughs> and so Karras walked away from football and became an actor. Uh, and appeared in several very popular films, um, including a uh, Paper Lion. <laughs> right. Played himself, yeah. George Plimpton, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and whereas uh, Paul Horning came back into football after a year's suspension, and he wound up in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. And so um, I talked to Karras at length. Horning was, you know. He, he, he wasn't real cooperative. He talked to me a little bit, but he, I mean, anybody I could call, I call. I had a good friend who was uh, very close to the NFL and he had everybody's number. And so I, I, I abused his, his yeah. good, goodwill with, with, with reckless abandon. And I called everybody I could possibly call. I, I talked to everyone from Johnny Unitas to Sonny Jurgensen to, uh, to uh, uh, Don Dawson. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Lynn Dawson, Review Bank. Sammy Ball. Thomas, um, you know, I talked to a lot of people, John Hadle, yeah. Lance Allworth, uh, just off the top of my head. I was very proud of all these guys I talked to. And they were very, they were very candid with. I was surprised how candid Johnny Unitas was, especially about the 58 championship game. And um, which I, I assume, you know, things were had, had happened. I think that I think from everything I heard and, and understood from Weebu Bank and from uh, Johnny Unitas, um, that the um, that there was a decision that came in from Carol Rosenblum to go for the touchdown and not go for the field goal. That's, mm-hmm. That was the information I had in the 58. However, uh, it, 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 Bubba Smith, uh, uh, a, a defensive player for the Baltimore Colts, claimed in a Playboy interview that the Joe Namath Super Bowl, the 1969 Super Bowl, was fixed. Yeah. So I really dug into this. I wanted to find out if any of this had any merit at all. And I found the bookmaker 
who laid off Carol Rosenblum's bet. Carol Rosenblum did bet a million dollars on that game, but the evidence is clear, and I've seen it, that Carol Rosenblum bet on his own team. The 1969 Super Bowl was not fixed. And this is, uh, was his bookmaker Gil Beckley? Uh, he was he was one of the top guys around Gil Beckley. I got I had uh, you know through my from my work on uh, on Jimmy Hoffa and my work um, on the mob since then my book my book uh, Honey of Cain about a contract killing in Ohio my book Dark Victory uh, about the Hollywood and the mafia I had collected some terrific sources and um, I use some of those sources for my book on pro football, the mob, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly that, you know, when I first uh, got into when, when I, I would, I would go into it. One of my sources took me to a, to a, uh, a bookmaking joint. And I think I was trying to think it was Vegas or Chicago. I think it was Chicago. And the most sophisticated piece of machinery they had there would be like a hand crank adding machine. This is like 1987, 88, 89, something like that, when the book came out in 89. Um, the, you know, the, nowadays, you know, mafia guys aren't necessarily, you know, knuckle draggers and eighth grade dropouts. These guys are, are Wharton grads, they're Harvard MBAs, Lawyers. these guys are well educated, these guys are businessmen. They have gone online. They have gone high tech and they have gone offshore. And, um, you know, as I say, you know, legalizing gambling is going to cause a proliferation of illegal gambling because, you know, when you gamble with these outfits, if you're gambling with the state or with your gambling with with one of these companies, whether they're aligned with the NFL or not, and most of them are, um, you're you're in a situation where they're going to be taken they're going to be taking a, a, a skim of the, of, of, the, uh, of, the, of the pool of bets. I mean, uh, you know, you're going to, you can get a bigger bang for your buck. Let's put it this way. After you get rid of you deal with taxation and everything else on your winnings, you can get a bigger bang for your buck from Charlie the Bookie, the friendly local bookmaker at the corner bar, who is still going to make you put up $11 to win 10 and only taking a 10% commission or vigorish, as they call it, on the losing Betsy books. Yeah. And plus, Charlie's going to he'll extend credit to you. And um, and so it's a, it, as a result of all of this, we have a we have a situation where um, I see I don't see. I think it's inevitable that sports is going to be um, damaged, perhaps fatally as a result of the legalization of sports gambling. And, I, and I'm saying this as a guy who said on Nightline in 1989 that, mark my words, you're going to see, you're going to see uh, sports books in uh, NFL stadiums. Um, to me, it's, it's inevitable. You're going, to, you're going to have these situations where sports gambling is going to compromise um, team members and it's going to compromise players, and it's, and it's inevitable. NFL security, to further answer your question, NFL security is not a, an operation where they, they, they uncover scandals and then they reveal them to the public. That's not what they do. They find out what's going on. They get some information. They find out what's going on. And instead of revealing it, they then come in and try to tamp it down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't want this. Their, their job, NFL security's job, is to protect the multi-billion-dollar investments 
of the NFL team owners. That's that's what they do. Well, and it's all about. And a big way they did that was getting information from guys like Gil Beckley on the, what lines were moving and you know was anything that he heard in the underworld, right? Well, that it was uh, you know Hundley and I got into a real dispute about that. Where uh, remember uh, Hundley was I mean excuse me Beckley was murdered in 1970, and obviously I never had a ch- chance to talk to him, um, but but uh, uh, Hundley. Um, you know, he resented the fact that I was objecting to him dealing with Beckley, but to me, it was giving Beckley a blank check to do whatever he wanted to do, and um, and w- without consequence. I mean, you know, people are already horrified when when they hear, "Oh, so and so mob guy is a is a is an FBI informant." Mm-hmm. Well, you know, in my experience, they're all FBI informants. Yeah. Why? Because when 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 you have a situation where um, you're you're giving information, you give yourself you get yourself a privileged sanctuary by doing this, where where you have you have a a mob guy will feed information to a um, uh, a detective or a FBI agent or uh, you know somebody in NFL security and it. it are they feeding information about their own people, their own families? No, they're feeding information about their competition. Yeah, that's that's what they're doing. They're not going to feed information about themselves. But as a result, they get this privileged sanctuary where they're not going to be touched. And Gil Beckley got a lot got away with a lot. We we knew about. Uh, I, I talked to some people from Nassau County on Long Island, and they Beckley was accused of fixing 19 games, Mm -hmm. 19 games. They had evidence of it, and the evidence ended up being tamped down. And so, you know, the establishment needs the information in order to keep the game uh, honest. And and I believe everyone wants to keep the game honest, uh, except for those who are trying to corrupt it. What about in terms of like uh, moving forward? I mean, because obviously, like one argument that you hear against uh, the corruption of the game is that they make too much money for anyone to try to bribe them. But obviously, there's still like the blackmail element, right? Like, do you do right. you would you say like if organized crime is going to influence a game in, in that direction, it would have to be through extortion, blackmail, some sort of racket in that say? It's it's like it's a it's like the Pete Rose situation. Mm-hmm. Um. The Pete Rose situation blew up, I think, in March of 89. And what had become known was that Pete Rose was betting on baseball. Mm-hmm. And, um, but he wasn't betting like with like a friend or something like that. Yeah. He was betting with a bookmaker, a guy named Ron Peters, I think was one of them. And once you have that kind of a relationship with an illegal person, you know, a criminal, um, or let's say you're getting cocaine from, you know, Jimmy, the dealer, uh, uh at, at the bar down the street. Um, once you have that deal, you have given your career to that person. That person owns you at that point. So I think that, I think that, uh, I think that's, I think a lot of that is is you know the big problem. It's, uh, right. It's not. No one's going to go. No one's going to end up going broke, mm. buying drugs. Uh, you know, although this 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 lawyer down in South Carolina just got convicted for murdering his his wife and son, claimed to have been taking 60, 60 pills a day of 
fentanyl, whatever he was taking. I mean, it was, you know, and, and he had made millions and millions and millions of dollars. And he was claiming that all this money wound up. I, I think that was a, a, a big part of the puzzle that was missing in that case is what the hell did he do with all this, these millions of dollars? Certainly it could have been from the uh, from buying drugs. Yeah. Uh, I think the bees pissing me. The bee, if I were to look into this thing as an investigator, I would be looking as this guy was being blackmailed by somebody about something. And uh, and that's what I think the danger in the NFL is that, that an association between a player and an illegal gambler uh, or, or a drug dealer. I mean, I know gamblers who on principle refuse to sell drugs. Mm -hmm. I'm not aware of many uh, drug dealers who on principle refuse to gamble. Right. So I, I, I you know, I think that, that that needs to be understood. It's the, it's the association. And once again, NFL security, that job, their job is to monitor that. And when things like that happen, they will handle these things quietly uh, because they don't want to impact the multi-billion dollar investments of the NFL team owners. Not at all. Hush, hush. Well, do you want to tell people where they can find you, uh, your website, and uh, where they can order the book? Um, yeah, the, the book has had a very it's a difficult history. Um, it was published initially in 1989 by um, William Morrill. Mm -hmm. uh, I received a $50,000 advance for it after I had published a story in Regardi's magazine um, about the NFL. And it was, you know, I, I kind of, I was kind of embracing the frontline conclusions probably more than I should have. In the book, I sorted it out, and I was, and I was, I, I was very critical of the frontline. So even though these were friends of mine. We collected the information. Um, the book never came out in paperback. It never came out in paperback because uh, I sue right away. I mean, the Moldavia New York Times uh, uh, started in, um, in, in, in early 1990. And once again, it went on till um, October 1994 when the Supreme Court allowed the May 1994 decision by the U.S. Um, uh, Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit uh, rendered its decision in Modea II, their, their bizarre reversal, the unprecedented mm -hmm. moment in American jurisprudence, uh, which cost me my win. And, um, and so um, then in, in, in 2013, I think it was there, was, a there was a company called Open Road Media, which uh, decided to start a uh, forbidden bookshelf uh, a yeah. collection and it was a collection of books which have been targeted for uh, to be suppressed or to be uh, censored uh, and uh, of the 27 books on the list three of them are mine <laughs> the Hoff Awards which was a blatant attempt to suppress the Hoff Awards uh, there's also uh, there's also the CIA book that was written by uh, a guy who used to be a football player who became a CIA agent uh, Deadly Deceit I, I know the books on the list. Who wrote? I don't know who wrote. His name is Frank McGee. He was a um, a player at Notre Dame who all then became a player for the uh, Green Bay Packers, and then he became um, a CIA agent. Did a lot of work in South uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, my book, The Hoff Wars, was on it. Mm -hmm. uh, Dark Victory, my book on uh, Ronald Reagan and the Mafia in Hollywood when he was uh, president of the Screen Actors Guild. And as president, you know, the relationships there and my major characters being Ronald Reagan, uh, Lou Wasserman, the head of MCA, the most powerful man in the entertainment industry, and Sid Korshak, the link between the legitimate business world and organized crime. Those are my three characters, Reagan, Wasserman, and Korshak. 
And then the third book was Interference. They took mm -hmm. Interference, which came out in 89. But these books were all Kindles. Mm -hmm. Now, Open Road has, Open Road has made a, a deal. In fact, they just signed a contract about a week ago uh, for all three of these books to, to go into paperback. There's a company who wants to turn the entire Forbidden Bookshelf, all 27 books, into not just Kindles, but paperbacks. Oops. So Interference... If you if you just go to my name Moldea uh, M O L D E A and my website being I don't sell books on my website Moldea.com. If you go to investigativejournalism.com, it comes to me. If okay. you go to freedomofinformationact.com, it comes to me. And if you go to Moldea.com, it comes to me. And I don't sell books there, but um, again, my uh, the Kindle is um, the Kindle is reasonably priced. The, the hardback for the for interference is sometimes can be kind of I've seen I've seen uh, interference sell for two dollars and I've seen interference sell for over a thousand dollars depending wow. on when it's in the news gotcha so um, so awesome it's, it's been a, it's been a, it's been a trip but it's been the, the history of, of interference has been a rough rough road and uh, but I'm as proud of that book as anything I've ever done yeah, well, I, I definitely put it like in my top 10 book show just for the fact that you took me into a world that I never really, you know, considered before. But I'm glad you took the time to come on here and talk about it. And you know, whenever the paperback comes out, I would encourage everyone to go out and buy it. Thank you.